in our time that have undergone significant change in meaning. Many of these are obvious. One needs only to ask, what is a woman? To understand the self-destructive impact that word warfare can have upon a society. But, like in the parable of the wheat and the tares that we referenced in the previous episode, I believe it to be the more subtle changes that have the greatest potential for harm. The undetectable imitations that like the servants in that parable, most of us don't even think to consider, let alone perceive. It is the enemy's ability to first mimic and then distort the meaning of virtue that make us most vulnerable to weeding out our own essential resources. As example, as promised, I'll speak on a virtue which is prone to distortion. Kindness. Remember, as I stated in the prior podcast, all warfare is based on deception. Now, Satan is wise and subtle. Imagine being engaged in wheat and tare warfare, where the wheat symbolizes kindness. What tactics might the enemy use to most effectively corrupt the fields of kindness? Taking this approach, you can almost imagine the devil brainstorming the ideal counter to kindness as if he would ask himself now if kindness was wheat what would be its terror in this type of warfare the enemy's high aim would actually be to achieve if possible convincing mankind to actually invert the virtue so that over time the terror takes on the kindness title and the wheat the counterfeit in truth, the devil really has a lot of material to work with here. Now, as I enter this portion of the discussion, there are those of you who fear that what is forthcoming for me is an attack on the virtue of kindness. I would like to be very clear here. What is forthcoming is not an attack on kindness. It's an attack upon those who would defile her. This is an effort to actually protect kindness as a virtue, because by her nature, Kindness cannot protect herself. She's defenseless. It falls upon other virtues to protect her. Courage, truth, common sense. These must all stand their guard so that kindness may choose to reveal herself at the most opportune moments and save herself that she might be made manifest in her most mature and impactful form. Charity. 
First, allow me to establish that I am not alone in believing that kindness is particularly vulnerable to modification in meaning or semantic imitation. Respectable philosophers, historians, and Christian apologists have previously commented on the mutability of kindness. Aristotle, for example, he gave a discourse on kindness 300 plus years before Christ. Surprisingly, the discourse is quite comprehensive, providing a substantial definition of the word, as well as a categorical assessment of what doesn't qualify as kind. In discussing a discourse given 2,400 years ago, I should acknowledge the realities of analyzing old translated texts, including the Bible. As with any translation, there will always be discrepancies to some extent between the original and the translated version. The fact that no two languages have an exact word-to-word translation ratio means that all translations will have an inherent imperfection. That level of imperfection increases when translating abstract concepts, like kindness. Such translation discrepancies also increase over time. By the nature of semantics, words are prone to change meaning over time. The more time, the more potential for change. For example, and specific to our topic, kind, the word, as used to mean benevolent or nice, did not even exist in the English language until the 14th century. Previous to that time, the term kind was only used in reference to one's nation or family, as in the term kin, which is similar to the kind homonym we use today, meaning a type of thing. The very important point here is that translations of the word kind as a virtue spoken of by Aristotle, Peter, Paul, and Christ must be regarded under proper circumstances. Subject to over 2,000 years of semantic changes in addition to the regular discrepancies of translation. The virtue of kindness we think we understand in modern day may very well not be in absolute alignment with the virtue spoken of in ancient times. Okay, on to Aristotle. This discourse comes from what's called rhetoric, the art of rhetoric. A work on methods of persuasions taken from lectures Aristotle gave to his students. He provides the following 4th century BC definition of kindness. Quote, To take kindness next, the definition of it will show us towards whom it is felt, why, and in what frames of mind. Kindness, under the influence of which a man is said to be kind, may be defined as helpfulness towards someone in need, not in return for anything, nor for the advantage of the helper himself, but for that of the person helped. The definition he provides is precise, placing limits on what can be termed kindness, limits that call into question what we currently qualify as kindness 2,400 years later. As Aristotle continues, He discusses how to ensure a debating opponent keeps their use of kindness strictly to the limits of the definition given. This is something we'll discuss in further detail later, but it's significant that even then, kindness was known to be vulnerable to misuse. That kindness was being claimed when, by definition, an act was not actually kind. This is an extremely important point. 
This indicates that the concept of kindness, regardless of the language or time of use, is primed for doublespeak manipulation. Insidious imitation, in addition to the customary plain old phone call game deviations. Our next professional reference is C.S. Lewis. Here are two bits of what Lewis offers on kindness confusion as it stood in 1940 in his writing, The Problem of Pain. Quote, there is kindness in love, but love and kindness are not coterminous. And when kindness is separated from the other elements of love, it involves a certain fundamental indifference to its object and even something like contempt of it. Close quote. Lewis draws our attention to the connection between kindness and love. In this first quote, he makes a distinction between the two, regarding kindness as an aspect of love, but not the totality of it. He determines that when kindness is separated from the more substantial parts of love, that all that remains is obligatory social pleasantry. We all know what he means. Each of us, from one extent to another, me more than most, we're consistently working to exhibit the persona of kindness. Sometimes the kind persona is even wielded to ironically irritate another person. As the euphemism goes, kill him with kindness. Lewis's second statement on love and kindness recognizes when the two words are used synonymously, their use indicates most commonly a principle stripped of much of its virtue. Reduced to mean simply the contentment of others without mind for the cost. A kind of don't worry, they're happy mind frame. Quote, by love in this context, most of us mean kindness. The desire to see others than the self happy. Not happy in this way or that, but just happy. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter, so long as they are content? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Not many people, I admit, would formulate a theology in precisely those terms, but a conception not very different lurks at the back of many minds. Close quote. So the brilliance here of C.S. Lewis on the issue of kindness is not that he reduces its virtue. Instead, it's that he recognizes its complexity because the difficulty of kindness is only partially in its practice. The conundrum with kindness is that we speak of it as if it's only simple. Simple is merely the mindless appeasement of others. Lewis makes the observation that kindness resides on the love as a virtue spectrum. And for anybody with more than a five-minute experience in any human relationship, you know there is nothing more complex than the principle of love. It stretches from the simplicity of Christ's invitation to Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. A kind statement I think we'd all agree, but it then extends to the act of God sacrificing his only son for the benefit of everything wretched. 
C.S. Lewis saw that the adversary could utilize kindness by semantically simplifying its meaning. Instead of being defined as helpfulness to someone with a genuine need, as Aristotle defined it, the adversary may have thought, why not just warp kindness to mean something more like enabling contentment in others? Because, and this is wickedly brilliant, who would ever dare say that aiming to make other people content is a bad thing? With that wickedly brilliant idea, this makes for a good moment to insert a small thinking exercise. So, consider this. For an act to qualify as kind, is it necessary that the person who has helped be content as a result of the act? I'm going to restate that because you're going to press pause and think this out for a minute or two. If you help a person and that person is not pleased with your help, does that disqualify your act from being termed kind? All right, press pause and work this over in your brain. See what you run into. All right. Is your mind spinning a bit? Mine is, and this ain't my first rodeo with kindness. Your initial reaction to the prior question, do the feelings of the person helped affect whether an act is kind? Your initial thought may have been something like, of course not. How someone else reacts to my acts has no bearing on whether I qualify as virtuous. Every parent knows this is true. Ingratitude of those served does not negate the virtue of the server. For myself, I need only remember when my two-year-old was disgusted with the purple lollipop I got her. She wanted the pink one. The irrationality of my kid does not negate the virtue value I've sincerely invested. But when it comes to kindness, how can that be? Because when we perform kind acts... We do so to specifically lighten someone's load. Isn't that the whole point of kindness? To make someone else feel better? And if a person doesn't perceive our act as having a positive effect, or if in actuality, our act intended for good makes things worse, can we then say that we've still earned the title of being kind? The reality is, is that kindness when you really put some thought to it, becomes obscure very quickly, which is weird. I mean, we are talking about the single most emphasized virtue in our society. How could its parameters be so difficult to delineate? My point here is that in the many ways we use the word kindness, it is not easy to define. Kindness, the word, means many different things in many different situations. As I mentioned in the prior episode, I've put considerable thought into the meaning of kindness for some time. So much so that I've come to cringe at what I consider to be its misuse. To be honest, COVID did a number on the concept of kindness. And not just for me, but for all of Christendom. Kindness or the lack thereof, became 
one of the lead terms used to shame people for thinking critically, using logic, and acting with individual agency. I consistently struggled with how such a beautiful virtue could be twisted against reasonable thinking. It was in this struggle that I had several small realizations. The first was realizing that the virtue of kindness was falling prey to doublespeak, the obscuring of words and their meanings to influence an emotional audience. That same concept that we discussed in the previous episode. The second was realizing the psychological difference in value between kind and unkind. The two are not opposite, but equal concepts. To be kind during COVID was no better than acting as socially expected, conforming to the norm. The path which was, without doubt, the easier to walk socially and emotionally. However, to be unkind was contemptuous, malicious, even borderline murderous. In the least, it was worthy of open character assassination. In my own dental office, where we gave our patrons the choice as to whether or not they wore facial coverings themselves, we were accused of, quote, killing babies. The reasoning? There were newborn babies in a local hospital. Babies who were born with serious complications unrelated to COVID. Babies who never left the hospital ICU, a place where masks are worn religiously at all times. In that ICU, there were babies who were dying, who also happened to test positive for COVID. Our policy of not enforcing kindness was complicit in the deaths of those children. And it was the reasoning of this particular parent that enlightened me to my third realization. People seem to compute kindness as they would an equation. This act plus this item equals this result. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, actually, kindness is oddly analogous to mathematics. And this would be excellent if kindness and mathematics were limited to the realm of simple arithmetic, both cognitively simple and straightforward. But they're not. There are many different types of math. There are many different types of kindness. Math in its simplest form, is easy to understand. A one-year-old knows that two marshmallows is preferable to one. And over the next few years, that same kid will learn that two marshmallows plus three marshmallows equals five marshmallows. Like math, kindness at its primary stage is a principle that is easy to teach. At its foundation is the desire to please others, a primal desire that, together with its counterpart, shame, lays the emotional foundation for all individuals to learn about the pluses and minuses of behavioral interactions in a social existence. But math doesn't stop at merely plus this or minus that, even though, as a concept, math is easiest to describe using simple arithmetic. Algebra, trigonometry, geometry, calculus, these have all drastically changed the overall welfare of the human race. When it comes to calculations of kindness, mankind seems to have lost the ability to reason equations that have even a simple variable. As Christians in particular, 
when an X factor gets thrown at us, we actually have a hard time computing anything but the basics. And that may be because for Christians, the Sermon on the Mount sets the foundation for Christian kindness. Much like arithmetic is the primary level for all math, kindness, as interpreted in Christ's first public sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is kindness at a primary level. Now, I say interpreted here because Matthew's version of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, the version we most commonly refer to, does not mention the word kindness, though the topic matter clearly focuses on principles of benevolent interaction. Anyway, so kindness, the type spoken of in the Sermon on the Mount, is kindness at a primary level. And some of you may cringe when you hear me describe it that way, but it's important to remember the Sermon on the Mount was Christ's first public introduction as a teacher of principles. It makes sense in such a situation, a new face with new ideas, to lead with primary principles. Principles slightly modified from the current cultural standards to set oneself apart, but at the same time, principles that are easily understood. Basic principles, the doctrines of Christ at a kindergarten level. Now, that, that doesn't mean that these principles aren't important. That which falls under the umbrella of kindergarten kindness is foundational to understanding higher levels of Christ-like attributes, higher level traits like love and sacrifice. So it's here on the Mount that Christ establishes principles such as judge not, that ye be not judged, as well as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. These are excellent rules of thumb for customary interactions and undeveloped social relationships. Those relationships that have potential to become much stronger. It is a kindness that enables potential in primary type relationships. Without this type of kindness, no higher kindness, meaning love, sacrifice, or charity, could exist. But... What if we were to mistakenly assume the Sermon on the Mount was directed to a bunch of Christian theologians from the 21st century? People who knew they were listening to God and interpreted his words as if he was giving them the answers to all of life's social dilemmas. You know, the type of people who might walk away from the Sermon on the Mount thinking they'd just been taught all the secret answers of human interaction. I say this because... This is similar to the mind frame in which we analyze the Beatitudes today. Well, what if kindergarten students were convinced that because they were taught arithmetic as the foundational principle, that any concept outside of arithmetic would be considered mathematical heresy? With each new math concept introduced, it's easy to understand how a child would be frustrated with new math. Uh, Mrs. Teacher, I know math, and I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but your math is wrong. You see, you have the numbers two and three by each other, and they together, they make five. You have it written that they make the number six. Your math is wrong. Now, in this situation, you as the teacher would recognize that adding a new dimension like multiplication to what the child understands about math 
will take some time and effort. Throwing percents and exponents or even derivatives at this kid right now would only convince him that you, the teacher, can't be trusted with numbers. For people who have spent the time and effort of learning the progressive principles and real-life application of mathematical concepts, we don't struggle with understanding how, for example, the numbers 4 and 2, if arranged differently, can account for answers of negative 2, 2, negative 6, 6, negative 8, 8, 16, and so on. Unlike math, though, we tend to teach kindness only to a level of simple social interaction. And I think I understand why. I mean, who wants to teach second-level kindness as a follow-up to Christ as the teacher of the introductory class? But I think that may be a lack of faith in ourselves, a bit of burying our own talents, if you will. A fear that we can't expound on the wisdom which has been given us for fear of losing it. I'm one who believes that it's better to have the courage to step out of the boat and fail than to allow the fear of exercising faith to prevent us from acting in the first place. With one caveat. I must be willing to concede my mistakes and learn from them. Now, with that understanding, if you have a desire to comprehend kindness more fully, you'll want to prepare yourself to be uncomfortable. Because progress requires effort, adjustment, like when you knew how to add, but then learned about multiplying. You're dealing with figures you thought you understood, but then realize the concept has entirely new dimensions. Dimensions that, if you choose to ignore, you will limit your potential to progress. This is the end of the episode, Complexities of Kindness. Part two. In the third podcast, we'll use the question you paused to think about earlier and the postulate that you may have proposed yourself, that a kind act is not determined by whether the person helped is content or not. Given the removal of that factor, we will discuss what then may qualify as acts of kindness. By applying that thought alongside the dimensions of responsibility and time to the concept of kindness, we will further discuss what I mean when I use the term second level kindness. thing. I need a little help from my audience. First of all, please share the podcast. Also, please be so kind to leave a rating and review on the podcast listening platform that you use, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, or the website, thebruised.com. T-H-E-B-R-U-Z-D. Thank you. We'll be back soon with episode 19, The Complexity of Kindness, part three.